Well, Jesus is absolutely amazing. That has kind of been my heart cry and, and the theme that's been coming over and over in my mind as I have uh, just sat with Matthew for the last several months studying and looking at it uh, in my own personal devotion is that Jesus is, is great. He's a fascinating person and character and there's so much uh, that, that we can learn from his life and learn from who he is. And as we slow down to study the book of Matthew for almost the next two years with some, some small breaks in between, I pray that that's what the Lord will impress upon your heart. If you're a Christian, that Jesus is Lord of all and worthy of your complete devotion. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're just uh, kind of curious about what Christianity is, um, this is a great time and a great study for you to plant yourself here at Sojourn and to learn more about Jesus Christ as Matthew is going to present his life before us and allow us to wrestle with this person who lived and who did miraculous works that those who are both believers and unbelievers say he's a historical figure that only a foolish person will try to erase from history. Um, but this is a time for you to wrestle with what the Word says and what Jesus said um, and who Jesus said that he was. And so as we dive and slow down into the book of Matthew, there's three things that I want you to be sensitive to, um, three T's that I kind of want you to remember. All right, that the book of Matthew is theological, it's testimonial, and ultimately it's meant to bring transformation. So it's theological. By theological, theology is simply the study of God. Meaning that Matthew, when he stopped and, and wrote this book, he wrote it with great detail and attention to help us to learn more about God and to see ourselves rightly in light of God. And a lot of times we can read the, the uh, Gospels and perhaps we're tempted to just kind of read through them as these, these random stories that are just placed here. But no, this is the, the work of Matthew's life. Matthew probably took 30 years of meditating upon what he experienced in Jesus' life, interviewing people who were actually there uh, with Jesus, and he strategically placed stories in the places that they're in. It's not necessarily always chronological. Sometimes he's pulling stories from different places and he's placing them at certain points in order to make a statement. So think of a crop and think of you just walking in between kind of the, the, the rows of a crop, whether corn rows or whatever, and while you're there, you can kind of just see and appreciate what's before you. But God's invitation for us is to raise up out of the crop and to see this the, uh, with a, a greater vision of all that's around us. And if you do that, you can see the different uh, kind of crop designs that's there. And that's what this book is. So as you read the book of Matthew, constantly ask yourself, um, why is it that Matthew placed this story in this place? And what is the big idea or big point? Because many times what Matthew's doing, he's stringing together chapters at a time so that we can see a big point. There's things that are being repeated from stories to stories in sections so that we can see more clearly a truth about God and a truth about Jesus. Second, I want you to see that this is testimonial, meaning that Matthew, whose name is originally presented to us as Levi, was a tax collector. He was someone who was not loved by his own Jewish people because essentially he worked for the Roman government. And most tax collectors had a, a very bad reputation amongst the Jewish people because not only did they take 
uh, from the Jewish people and give to Rome, but oftentimes it was just common practice for them to uh, charge up charges and take for themselves. So tax collectors, when Jesus mentions them in the Gospels, are oftentimes mentioned amongst the same types of people as drunks and prostitutes. That's what they were seen as by the Jewish people. And Matthew was one of those. And one day Jesus came to Matthew and told Matthew to follow him. So this is that Matthew who name was Levi, who was a tax collector, who had more allegiance to the Roman uh, people than he did to his own people that Jesus transformed from the inside out. And so we're going to read his testimony. But in reading his testimony, you want to understand that this is a historical event. As Matthew is writing this gospel letter that is going to be uh, shared throughout uh, first century churches, there would have been people alive who could have testified to his testimony. There would have been people alive who have mentioned in these stories that other people would have been like, oh, you can go to this place and actually interview them and they will tell this same story. So Matthew is giving this testimony. But if we read this book as theological and historical without of the intent that Matthew intends, which is transformational, then we miss the whole point. The reason God has given us this book, the reason that he has breathed on this book and given us this testimony is so that we can be transformed as disciples of Jesus Christ. May we never read the Bible and may we never come to it as as merely a book written by mere people. This is God's word written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can be disciples. In fact, that's Matthew's main point. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, I believe his whole book hinges upon this invitation that Jesus gives. And it's God's invitation to us today. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Yo, take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus' invitation uh, to the crowds that he was preaching to, and it's his invitation to you today as you study the book of Matthew is to remember that he wants to take off of you the yoke of this world, the yoke of worldly living and and worldly aspirations and, and the emptiness that this world has to offer, and he wants to give you a different yoke, a yoke that is easy and heavy to carry because he is carrying it with you. It's easy in comparison to a life without him. His invitation is that you would learn from him. Follow me and I will make you fisher, fish for people. Um, Augustine said this about coming to God's word. Whoever therefore thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build up the double love of God and neighbor does not understand it at all. Our purpose for opening this book and studying the the book of Matthew is so that we could come to a double love for God and for people. Pray with me. Uh, Father, as we introduce this book, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to just grow in our love for you. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to adore you, to see you more clearly. I pray as we study the book of Matthew, Father, that you would help us to see that it is a book of uh, of disorientation. It's a book of upheaval. Uh, it's, a, it's a book of surprises. Uh, it's, a, it's a book of scandal. But ultimately, Lord, that it's a book of restoration. It's a book of peace. It's a book of, of liberation. It's a book of hope because of Christ Jesus. 
So speak to the Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many times when we uh, approach the book of Matthew, we want to skip to verse 18, right? Come on, right? I'm not the only person that's like, oh, let me read a book of the Bible or the gospel. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 1 through 17. And you're like, you know, I get it. Now on to verse 18. And then we jump to verse 18 uh, uh, because it's an it's a easier read. But Matthew doesn't start with verse 18 for a reason. He starts with verse 1 and works through verse 17 because he wants us to see some very important things. In essence, he wants us to see who Jesus is. And he want, doesn't want us to just know him. He like, wants us to like really know him. And in order to really know someone, you don't just start with where they are today. You ask questions to help you to understand their, their past. I mean, that's why some of you have went to Ancestry.com and you've paid that $99 to learn about where your family is from or you desire to, right? Because you really want to better understand yourself or your family. And by the way, did you know genealogical studies is like the number two hobby in America since 2017 behind gardening? I'm like, what? Really? Right? I mean, there's just a skyrocket in America about people wanting to learn about their lineage and their genealogy because there's a sense if I know where I'm from, if I know the struggles of my grandparents and my great-grandparents, perhaps I can know more about me and be more in tune with my own story. And so even a great counselor knows that there is some truth to that. There is some validity. Uh, the more we can learn about our past and where we're from, where our family is from, and where the people are from, the more we can perhaps better understand ourselves, right? I mean, that's why any good counselor, when they uh, meet with you for the first time, they're not going to start off with what's just bothering you. Uh, they may ask that, but then they're going to push rewind and they're going to start asking questions about your parents or your grandparents. Uh, what was your parents' health? Uh, did they have diabetes? Does anyone in your family struggle with depression? Are there any medications that you currently take? Oh, there is. How far back in your family lineage does it go? They want to get to those roots to see what's in those roots so that they can help you. Well, I believe Matthew is going to start with Jesus' roots because he wants us to really know Jesus and to really understand uh, how, how God's story is all working up to him and through him, essentially. But he also is starting with uh, this genealogy and these origins of Jesus because he wants the reader to better understand them because all of us, we are a part of a bigger story. There's a, a meta narrative that is running throughout scripture. And if we are better going to understand where we are going, um, we're going to first have to slow down and understand where we all are from. And so Matthew does this. And in doing so, he wants to answer the question for his Jewish audience, who is Jesus? And he's going to show us that Jesus is, is three things. One, he's the fulfillment of God's promises. Two, he's the hope for a new beginning. And three, he is the savior of the world. And when I talk about that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, I want us to see two things. That one, he is the hope for Israel. And two, he is the, the hope for the nations. So he starts off by showing Jesus as this hero. And he does so by saying his name is Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. Christ is a royal title. Christ means Messiah. It means the anointed one. So immediately, if a, a Jewish person is reading this, they're saying, wait a minute, this is a huge claim. 
If it's a disciple of Jesus from the early church, they're like, yes, this is the story of my Savior, my anointed one. But if it's a person who's not a disciple of Jesus Christ, automatically they're just shocked at Matthew's huge claim that, that this Jesus who lived, who died, who was crucified, who just about everybody knew about in some ways that, that, that Matthew is claiming that he's the Messiah. And then he says he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Like he's coming out the gates like, let's go. Let's go. The son of David. Nathan, the prophet, spoke the oracles of God to David one day and gave this promise to David in 1 Chronicles that we read. He says, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. Speaking of Saul, I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So this is a promise that was given to David that the children of Israel knew about and that they longed for. Imagine being an a, 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 a Israelite and, and imagine that you know your history well and you know these promises that God has given that has been stewarded through generation to generation. You could probably say this by heart, but you also know the reality that as you read this in first century Rome, that you are under the oppression of a Gentile nation and that it has been silenced for over 500 years. God has not spoken to your people and has not raised up a a prophet. And then one day after the death of this man who claimed to be Lord, who claimed to be Messiah, you receive a, a letter that someone shares with you that he, the one who was crucified, really is the son of David. And he is the one who is going to reign forever. It would have took a whole lot of faith for you to believe that, but this is the claim that Matthew is making from day one. He is the son of David. He is the one who's going to reign on a throne forever. And by claiming that he's the son of David, he's also making the claim that he's not only going to reign over the children of Israel, that he's the hope for Israel, but he's the hope for the nations. And that's what we see in this title, the son of Abraham. So interesting. In Genesis chapter 11, we see a promise is given. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, a promise is given. In Genesis chapter 11, we read about the story of of Babel. And it's basically how uh, uh, people of the earth, they come together and they build this large tower as a monument to themselves, their own ingenuity and their own creativity. And God sees how well they're working together, but at the end of the day, it's not for his glory, it's for their own. So what does God do? He confuses their language, their tongues. He gives different languages to people, and he disperses them throughout the world. And this is how we have this, the traveling of the, or the table of nations where people are going out in different languages and different tongues. But have you ever made the connection that the next story is a story of a man named Abram who's a pagan? It's a story of a man named Abram whom God chose to reveal himself. And then God gives Abram this promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And this is what he promises. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, we read in the book of Exodus that God did not choose Abram. He did not choose Isaac and Jacob and make them his people based upon their own works or merit. God looked at an earth uh, who many were living for their own glory and not for his glory. And he chose by his divine sovereign hand and grace one person. And through that person, he promised that through his lineage will come one who will rule and one who would bless the nations. Listen, Matthew's saying, yo, this is him. We read the, throughout the Old Testament, even throughout the Psalms, we see this promise that one day there will be one king who will reign and this king will rule over every nation. All the nations will submit to his leadership. Psalm 47, verse 5, God ascends among shouts of joy, the Lord with the sound of trumpets, sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise to our king, sing praise, sing a song of wisdom for God is king of the whole earth. This would have been a song that Israel would have sung and memorized. And then he goes on, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the people have assembled with the people of God, of Abraham, for the leaders of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. This is what Israel longed for. All throughout the Psalms, just read the Psalms this week, you'll see this, this promise, Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy for you, judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations of earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you for the earth has produced its harvest. Harvest, God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. And we read in Psalm 72, this promise, may his name endure forever as long as the sun shines. May his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. This is Israel's vision of the coming Messiah, that through the coming Messiah, there will be an ingathering of nations. And one day Yahweh will rule through an Israelite and he will be worshipped and adored by all people in all nations. Matthew say, hey, y'all, he came. His name is Jesus the Christ. And this is his story. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. And may we remember as we look at the news and we see the upheaval of the nations and we see con confusion within our own nation that God is at work to bring everything through Jesus Christ. And may we not lose sight as we watch CNN or Fox. May we not lose sight as our heart breaks over what is happening nationally and, and internationally. May we remember that God is on the throne and everything is going according to plan. Second, Matthew wants us to see Jesus is not only the, the fulfillment of God's promises, but that Jesus is the hope of a new beginning. This is absolutely fascinating what he's about to do with his genealogy. Yo, he's about to disorient everyone who's reading this and then reorient them. And, and what he does is, is, is crazy, it's, it's scandalous because the average Jewish person would have memorized the genealogies. They would have looked at, at First Chronicles and Ezra's, they would have known them by heart. And, and, and as they receive this letter, they're like, okay, here's the genealogies. They may have even sung a little song to remember it. And then Matthew is, is just about to pack this genealogy with surprises. See, when we look at it, we don't understand all that Matthew's doing, but here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna take some people's name out and intentionally replace it with other people's name. And then he has the nerve in a patriarchal society. 
See, see, genealogies were supposed to be like resumes. Genealogies were supposed to like be the neat family history that you put on display, like your resume. You don't put all your problems. You'll be like, I'm like this, and I did this, I did this. And really, if you told the truth, you're like, I really stunk at this. And actually, I lost my job because I didn't do this well, but we put there, right? Right? That's, that's kind of genealogies were supposed to be this like perfect picture of your family that you, you pass down the line. Matthew shocks everybody by messing it up because he includes women, which is not common. And not only does he include women, but he includes Gentile women. He includes Gentile women. And not only does he include Gentile women, he includes Gentile women who all were part of a major scandal. And what's he doing? He's disorienting them. And he's showing the people who have great pride in their lineage and in their family that their family actually is really messed up. And that the reason that they're in the place that they're in is because they have turned their back from Yahweh. But even though they've turned their back from Yahweh, that God has not given up on them and he has kept his promise. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And through Christ Jesus, there is a new Genesis. There is a new beginning. In fact, that's what the word genealogy means. It means new beginning. It means, it means, it means a new Genesis, a, a new origin. It means a new creation. He's showing that all the people that they've placed their hope in, if they're honest with themselves, they, they failed them. Like Judah, this patriarch who they, they grew to respect, who God blessed, who, who the Messiah will come through his lineage, he, he messed up. He slept with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, who was a Gentile. And that's how they had twins. Rahab was was a person who God used. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11 that she's actually uh, put before us as a hero of the faith. But Rahab was a, was a prostitute and a Gentile. And he doesn't just stop with Tamar or, or Rahab. As they're reading on, they, they get to, to Boaz. And it says, Boaz fathered Obed by, by Ruth. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. And they see, wait a minute. David, our beloved songstress and, and king, his grandmother was Ruth. Ruth, Ruth, wait, Ruth, Ruth? Like, yo, Ruth was a Moabite. Matthew, why are you tripping? Tell the story a different way. And then he says, oh, yeah, King David, the one who we put on a pedestal, the one whom lineage, the Messiah is going to come after. He had a son named Solomon, and Solomon was had by Uriah's wife. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> and what is he doing with this genealogy? He's disorienting us to show that God is in the business of bringing out his will through imperfect people. And that the same people that the Messiah came through, he came for. In fact, you can't spell Messiah without spelling mess. God gives new beginnings and new genesis. 
through and to broken people so that they can see that the power of his will coming to fruition is not through their ability and their works and their clean record, but it's through him. And God's invitation to us all through this genealogy today is for us to step out in courage and to lay before him all of who we are. And for us to allow God to redefine us, not based upon our works or our genealogy or our family, but based upon his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And for us to find our identity in him and him alone. Says Jamal, your, your past is not what defines you. I know it's a script that Satan wants to remind you and that Satan tries to bring before you yesterday and yesteryear and what you should have done and what you could have done and all of your, your brokenness. But through this genealogy, he reminds me that God in Christ Jesus identifies with me and he takes my name upon himself and within himself for his glory. Jesus identified with David, an adulterer, and I know this is going to offend you in many ways, a rapist who used his power to prey upon another woman and another man's wife. And yet he says, in me, David is clean. And Jamal, in me, you are clean. He takes upon the name of Abraham. A man who we call the father of faith, but a man who really, yes, who displayed faith, but a man who also displayed times of not having faith. A man who also went and slept with his handmaiden because he did not believe and his wife did not believe that through him and Sarah would come a promised child. A man who once gave his wife up to a ruler in fear that if he did not, if he told the ruler that this was his wife, that he would be killed. So he lied and said, this is my sister. And yet Jesus identifies with him and says, I am the son of Abraham. This genealogy is, is here to remember, remind us, church, that we are messy and that we are broken and we can sit here like we got it all together and we can greet people like everything is fine and well and I'm blessed and I'm highly favored but we all know there is some skeletons in our closet and there is some brokenness that we have there's some stuff that is in us and God says I know and that's why I sent my son because you can't make you right with me. Only he can. And for some of us, we are living under a weight. We're living under a fear. And that weight and that fear is that we will end up like maybe our parents. Perhaps your fear is that you will end up like, like maybe your father. Perhaps your fear is maybe that your marriage will end up maybe like your mother's. My father's marriage. Perhaps your fear is that those, those demons that your parents had will, are now your demons. And no matter how hard you try, you, you cannot 
escape it. Perhaps you're being defined by the words of someone else. This genealogy reminds us, number one, no matter how good or how bad your parents are, that that identity is not what makes you right with God. And meeting or not meeting that expectation or that way of life is not what defines you. What defines you is Jesus. Listen, and the worst thing that can happen to you is not you being like your mom or your dad. It's not a failed marriage or a failed relationship or failed dreams and failed fantasies. The, 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 the worst thing that can happen to any of us is us not being identified as in being in Christ Jesus. No matter what your past is, no matter what brokenness you carry, no matter what demons you are fighting, in Christ there is freedom. In Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is hope. In Christ, there is a, a new beginning. No matter how many times you have fallen down, what defines you is not your failures, but it is your faith and trust in Jesus. Matthew is very strategic. If we, if we were the average Jewish person and we're looking at this, we see that the number three and seven is repeated throughout this genealogy. In fact, it's broken up into three sets of threes and then seven names twice under the, the category of, of a three. And the word seven, and the number seven and three, uh, to a Jewish person represents completion and perfection. And so if one is properly reading this, we see that he mentions uh, that there are 14 generations in verse 17 that is leading up to Christ. If one is reading this carefully, you, you will only count 13 generations. And there's all kind of theological debate, like why does he say 14 and there's 13? See, the Bible is full of errors and Matthew didn't know what he's doing. No, Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. And I believe what Matthew is doing is he's allowing these numbers to add up and he's playing around with his genealogy to, to keep them uh, a surprise and to keep there their, their being this tension. But ultimately, I believe what he's doing is showing us that, that in Christ Jesus, there is a, a new generation. And that all of history's past comes through him. And that all of the future is shaped by him. He is the end of the Old Testament. And he is the beginning of something new. Do you believe that today? That you are not your past, that you are not your parents, that you are not your failures, but that you are found in Christ and in Christ you are imperfectly, but yet perfectly complete. Look at verse 20 and 21. Because not only does Matthew want to show us that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, he also wants to show us that Jesus is the hope of new beginning and ultimately that Jesus is the Savior of the world. When we look at verse 21, we see these words speaking of Mary. And, you know, there's all kind of scandal around Mary. We'll talk about this next week. She was a, a teenager who was betrothed, in essence, who was engaged uh, to Joseph. And she becomes pregnant without ever sleeping with him. And this is a, a big thing. Joseph is just like uh, any man. If, if uh, his fiance says, hey, I'm pregnant, 
and he's never slept with her. And then she says, like, and, and God is the person who gave me the baby, right? <laughs> you see, Joseph is wrestling with it, too, just like any man would be like, oh, really? Right. And my name is Barney. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a purple dinosaur, right? <laughs> like, like, he's wrestling with this, too. But listen, we see that the story is going to tell us how she becomes pregnant. And twice, uh, we see that she becomes pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is overshadowing her. It's going to come and overshadow her. And again, this points us back to the book of Genesis, because in the book of Genesis, we see that the Holy Spirit is bringing order out of chaos. <laughs> he is creating something new. And in the same way, it's as if God is saying through Jesus Christ, through this birth of the Son, in the midst of messiness, God is going to bring calm to chaos and newness and order to that which is broken. And he's going to give Mary a son who's not just the son of David, who's not just the son of Abraham, but who is the very son of God. Look at what he should be named. His name shall be Jesus, and he will save his people. Now, the name of Jesus is based off of an Old Testament name, which is Joshua. And the word Joshua in Hebrew is literally, means literally Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. So anytime you say the name of Jesus, you're saying that Jesus saves. If I could sing, I'll just bust out a song, right? There's something about the name Jesus. It is the sweetest name. I know. Where Johnny at? Let's go. No, i Right? That's, a, that's an old song I grew up singing. something about the name Jesus. When we sing the name Jesus, literally, Yahweh saves. God saves. So if we slow down and we were to read verse 21, it says, She will give birth to a son. And you are to name him Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. So who is it? The, who is it? Who's the he? Is it Yahweh who saves or is it Jesus who saves? And that's exactly what Matthew wants this audience to wrestle with, that, that Yahweh does save. And the way that he saves is through his son, Jesus. And what is he going to save his people from? He's going to save his people from his sin. And there's all types of, of words to, to denote sin in, in our English Bible and, and even in the Greek, right? You've got uh, a word that means transgressions, which is like intentional sins. And, and you've, you've, got, you've got all these different words. But the word that he uses here is literally sin, which means uh, moral failure. Which means that God is going to save his people through his son, Jesus Christ, from their moral failure. From when they miss the mark. From their imperfections. And why does God have to save his people from sin? It's because the wages of sin is death. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. That because Adam and Eve sinned, we are doomed. Death has entered into the world. And all of us have a plight of hopelessness. Why? Because sin is a cosmic issue. It is a front against a holy and a righteous God, a, a perfectly just God, and a perfectly just God, a God in whom where there is no sin and no injustice cannot accept and embrace a person who has sinned. At least he becomes unjust. If a judge was to see that a person committed murder or stole and was just like, you know what, you had a bad day, I forgive you, 
We would say that judge is unjust because where there is a penalty, where there is, 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 is a moral, a failure of that nature, there has to be justice. And this is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about how God loved his creation so much that he made a way for these unjust people to be in relationship with him. And he did this by sending his son and allowing all of his wrath and all of his justice to be poured out on him. And he became our pardon for sin. He became our substitute on the cross. God allowed his perfect son to die a death of injustice so that our sins would be forgiven. And he gave us a unjust, constantly failing people, not just in deed, but in thought. That's what Jesus is going to do on the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, it has been told to you. That adultery is sleeping with another man's wife. But I tell you, adultery is not sleeping with another man's wife. Adultery is looking at a woman lustfully. And everyone is going to hear Jesus' words and, and be thinking, well, if that's the case, who is free of sin? And Jesus is like, no one is free of sin. It's been said unto you that if you call your brother a, a fool and lash out in anger that you have sinned. But I tell you. Or if you, if you physically harm your brother or murder him, that you have committed a sin. But I tell you, if you just call him a fool, and if you hold unforgiveness in your heart that you've sinned against him, Jesus is raising the bar throughout Matthew in order to show people that we all have sinned, we all have fallen short of the glory of God, and our only way, our only hope to be made right with God is actually not found in ourselves, but is found in him. Listen. God loves you, and his relentless love for you is not based upon you having the perfect family that is Instagram ready, and it's not you being the image of a perfect father or a perfect Christian man of God, <laughs> or this perfect woman of God. Like, Matthew lays bare all of these imperfections to say, Israel, let's be real, all of y'all messed up. Even the best of y'all are crooked. And if y'all hope is in some law or your own righteousness, you are, you are playing the role of a fool. Bear your, the truth, let it all out, and see that God has provided a way for you to be made right with him. And in him, through his pardon and through his power, you can live a life that's pleasing to God, and that's not a life of perfection. That's a life of pursuing his son. It's scandalous. God's love is scandalous. And every Sunday as a family, we come and we take a meal together to remind ourselves of this scandalous love, of this new genesis, of this new creation. For the fact that in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins and that he is our righteousness by taking a meal together. The same Jesus who was born would die. He would die an early death, 33 years. He will be taken to Golgotha's Hill, stripped naked in front of his family, bare embarrassment and ridicule from the very people he created 
allow his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could have life in him. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, listen, you preach the death of Jesus. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And as Christians, we take this meal every week to remember this good news, that life is found in Christ, that our mess is made right through the Messiah. If you're not a Christian here today, rather than take this meal, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Hope is not found in you being a good person. Because if you slow down and think about it, who really is good based upon God's standard of goodness? Hope is not found in you finding peace through meditation. It's not found in Buddha or Confucius. It's not found in Islam or Muhammad. The Bible is very clear that hope is found when you come to an end of yourself and you see Jesus as the climax of all history. The one who, even though he was the son of Abraham and the son of David, he's the one who both call Lord. And our hope is that you would see Jesus and come to love him. Let's pray.